Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We sing about coming together in the congregation in the presence of the Lord with His protection as we open our Bibles and look to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you looked at the bulletin, you may note right off that I am going to beg your patience a bit this morning and read a longer section of of God's Word. And so it will be particularly helpful for you to have your Bibles open as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 together. Now, as we've worked through this series on biblical worship, which is coming to a close today, we've worked through the questions of who we worship, why we worship, what is worship, how do we worship, when do we worship. And I hope that as we've gone through this series, you've been challenged and refreshed as as we look at the majesty of God who is worthy of all worship. And as we remember the joy of offering Him the praise that He is worthy to receive as our central purpose in life, and as we are called to gather to Him in reverence and joy and love as we worship Him according to the truth of His Word. So there's my one-sentence summary of all that we've talked about so far. But we come to a, a last question today, which is the question, with whom do we worship? And in one sense, the question is a very straightforward one with a very simple answer, and it's that we worship with all those who have been called by the name of Jesus Christ, with our brothers and sisters in Him, with the family of God. But this can be a challenging one for us to live out, and we know that because the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about who we worship with. And so I want to read today 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, And through chapter 13, verse 13. So follow along as we read God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your word And would you use it by the power of your spirit in our hearts and lives today? We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. As many of you know, parenting comes with fielding a wide range of complaints about various ailments in life. And some of them have very straightforward uh, answers. For instance, a young child who comes and says, my finger hurts. It's very easy. You just put a band-aid on it and it always gets better. Or sometimes uh, they say, I have a headache and you give them ibuprofen. But then there's always the more general ailments. And the conversation goes something like this. My foot hurts. Well, what happened? I have no idea. It just hurts. What do you do for that? But fortunately, as my kids know, I'm an expert at treating these vague ailments. And I have two solutions that never cease to solve them. The first uh, option, which I always offer, is that the quickest way to forget pain in one foot is to drop a heavy brick on the other foot. And immediately they will forget all the pain pain that they were complaining about. Or if that doesn't seem attractive, the second solution is even easier. If it hurts, cut it off. And the hurting part is gone. Now, somehow my advice has never been taken. And my empathy has been questioned on multiple occasions. And of course, for good reason. Since it should be obvious that using my hands to hurt my foot does not help, but only does further damage to my body. And yet, as obvious as this may seem, when it comes to the body of Christ, we often default to a fair bit of brick dropping and amputations. This has, in fact, been a stumbling block for Christians ever since the beginning, which is why the New Testament authors spend so much time reminding us that as followers of Jesus, we are one family, one body, unified by one spirit in him. And that's the point I want us to dwell on this morning, that across many differences, 
We are called to worship with our fellow believers in Christ in unity because God has saved us as one body in him. Say that again. Across many differences, we are called to worship with our fellow believers in Christ in unity because God has saved us as one body in him. Now, as Paul addresses this point, he looks at the unity of the body, the diversity of the body, and the necessary bond in this body. And so we want to look at each of those three points in turn. And let's start with the unity of the body. Paul tackles this subject in chapter 12, right at the beginning, verses 12 and 13. And he notes that just as a body is one, though it has many different members or many different parts, so it is with the body of Christ. No matter how different or divided we may have been before coming to Christ, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, and so on, we have been baptized in one spirit into one body. As Paul puts it in verse 27, all who put their faith in Christ are now part of one body in Christ and individually are members of that body. The theological uh, groundwork of this would say when we put our faith in Christ, His Spirit comes to dwell in us and His Spirit unites us to Christ. But all who put their faith in Christ all then share the same Spirit. So the Spirit of God not only unites us to Jesus, it also unites us to one another. And this unity that we have in the Spirit is not a happy side effect or an unintended consequence of salvation. It is the intentional work of God, and you see it in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, we find that God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, just as he chose. Which means as you look around at all those who profess Christ, each person around you is put there intentionally by God. And so we have this beautiful picture of the work of our triune God where the Father chooses and arranges the members of the body. The Son dies on the cross to redeem the members for that body. And the Spirit applies and brings about that body just as God had intended. And the result, according to Paul, is that we should consider ourselves intimately bound to one another in Christ. And you see how he puts it in verse 25 and 26, that there should be no division in the body, but that we should have care for one another. Because our our bond, our unity in Christ is so close that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the same point that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 13, 3, when he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and as those and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. See the way the author of Hebrews puts it. This isn't some kind of mental trick where we dig up some sympathy by kind of pretending we were in prison with them. No, it's saying they are part of you. It's as, as if saying my foot is in prison. Would not the whole body grieve because we are so connected to one another in Christ? So I want to just encourage you practically. Week by week when our prayer sheet comes out, would you consider looking at that prayer sheet or our missionary prayer requests and lifting one another up, rejoicing with a member who is honored and grieving with those who suffer since you are members of the same body. Or maybe you'll think of that intimate connection when you see visitors come in to the church. You know, there is nothing more lonely than being with a thousand people who ignore you because they all know each other and you don't. 
But that visitor who walks in, who professes Christ, is part of us. It's part of the body. And so we look out for them because they are united to us. But we ask the question, well, where is this unity, this, this body, this family of God seen and displayed most visibly? Where is that enacted in our lives together? And surely it's when we gather as a body and come together and worship and we see right in front of us the body that Christ has died to save. I think one of the clear negative impacts of American individualism on the church has been an overemphasis on all that matters is my relationship with God. And of course, our individual relationship with God is vital. We will stand before the judgment seat of, of God based on our profession of faith, not someone else's faith. But to use the body imagery, if Jesus is the head, sometimes we act like an individual finger trying to attach ourselves to the head. And, and an individual finger attached to the head is not free and unencumbered by the burdens and failures of the other members of the body. It's just grotesque. And it's incomplete. And it's ineffective. And so it is if we try to draw near to God on our own without the body. At other times, maybe it's not about this individualism. Maybe it's more that we like to gather with certain parts of the body, but not others. And so we like to just sort of amputate half of it that's least like us. But look around you, and what will you find in the body of Christ? You will find all sorts of difference. You will find optimists and cynics. You will find athletes and hunters and crafters. You will find white-collar and blue-collar Republicans and Democrats. You will find people of every ethnic and cultural background and assumption gathered around in the body of Christ. They're all part of one body with us. I remember a funeral here at Westminster. It was probably about a decade ago. And a friend of the family stood up at the funeral and said something along these lines. I don't know if I'm quoting it exactly, but she said, We are so different in every possible way. There is no way we would ever possibly be friends except for Jesus. But in Christ, we have become the closest of friends and supports for each other. And that's the body of Christ the unity that we have in him. So let's start by remembering what Paul teaches us first here in 1 Corinthians 12, that across difference in different giftings and various things, we are united together by the Spirit as one body in Christ, by the will of God who chose us and arranged us with these differences exactly as he pleased according to his will. But having seen the unity of the body, let's go on to look at the difference or the diversity of this body. In verse 14, Paul notes that the body does not consist of one member or one kind of parts, but many. And those body parts are as different as toes and intestines. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about Mr. Potato Head. I'm sure some of you have played with Mr. Potato Head before, and I was thinking, you know, that whole game of Mr. Potato Head relies on you knowing what a body looks like. Because if someone were to come across some human version of Mr. Potato Head and have no idea what a body looks like, there is no chance in the world they'd pick up a hand and an ear and think they went together. But they do. They're both part of the body. And in the same way, the body of Christ has a diversity of people. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female, American, Congolese and and Burmese, and so on. 
And not only does the body have different uh, personalities, but the body of Christ also has different gifts. Some are teachers. Some are administrators. Some are really not administrators. Some have gifts of hospitality. Some are generous to give and, and so on. But that diversity gives the body of Christ its complete beauty and its ability to care for one another and minister to one another as God intended. And maybe this is where we need the greatest reminder as we look around us and consider with whom we worship. Because when we run into difference, our sinful nature immediately defaults to playing the comparison game and starting to rank people. Well, they're different than me, and I'm better. Or they're different than me, and they're wrong. Now, that, in fact, was exactly what was happening in Corinth as people were comparing themselves based on the gifts that they had and saying, well, this is better than that, or, or you're right and, and I'm wrong, and division was, was coming. And that's why Paul takes these verses to talk about the body to combat this ranking game as fundamentally at odds with the body of Christ. And, of course, difference can be challenging. Just think about the ways it challenges us in our worship. It is harder to worship with the distraction of toddlers than it would be with no toddlers. And it's harder to take our toddlers out to honor those who can't hear well in the pew in front of us than it would be to not do that. But we do both because there's young and old in the body, and we delight to worship together as one body. Welcoming and befriending someone who has a great cultural and language barrier between us is hard. Drawing near to someone who is very weak in the areas we are strong is difficult. You know how it is when, when you are very strong in an area and someone else is weak and it's easy for us to, to be judgmental about those differences. And yet all of this is part of the body of Christ as God intended. And because difference is challenging, our natural tendency is to group up with the people who are like us. But, but Paul calls us out on this in 1 Corinthians 12. He gives us this great imagery. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And yet sometimes we're tempted to try to create a church where we're all very similar to one another. And it would, running into a church like that is like walking down the sidewalk and seeing this huge eyeball rolling towards you. You know, it, it blinks and you're kind of knocked over by the wind of its, uh, if its blink. Or I, w- I would pity, I would pity the, the giant nose that lived in Lancaster County in spring and fall and all it can do is smell. Because if you just have one body part, you're missing the whole diversity of the body. And yet, yet that is sometimes what we long for in the body of Christ. If I could just have everyone who thinks like me and is like me and does what I do well, then surely it would be a lot better. This is so tempting for us as a, as a church. Tabidi Anwabwile warns that a million church splits happen every Sunday. Not the kind of church splits that involve arguing in strife, but the quiet, subtle splits that come from hundreds of little cliques where love and concern is shared with the select few that we like and find easy to be with. But I think we have to add... As hard as it is to reach out to one another across difference, even if we can expect a certain amount of difference, we can also be tripped up by our sinfulness and messiness. I think it's very easy for us to want our church to be filled with respectable people who always do things very professionally and are gifted in every way and are easy for us to teach and bless us in return, whose kids would never present any temptations to our kids, 
And then we have the church that we could really be part of. But to put it bluntly, church is not for the elite. We're not gathering up the perfect group of people so that we'll get just the church experience we were hoping to have. Nor is church just for the righteous. Church is for many different kinds of sinners who all know their need of Christ and run to be together in him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, God's grace speedily shatters our wish dreams when it comes to our churches. By sheer grace alone, Bonhoeffer writes, only that fellowship with faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight and begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. It is only as we draw near together as fellow sinners that God begins to work in us and remind us that it is only the blood of the Lamb through the Spirit of God that holds us together as His body. But this is hard, isn't it? And that's why Paul goes on, I think, thirdly, to highlight love as the one thing that is absolutely necessary for the body to function. So we've seen the unity of the body, we've seen the diversity of the body, now we want to look at the necessary bond of love. And I'm sure most of you have heard Paul's love chapter before. It's most often probably read at a wedding. And since that's when it's most often read, maybe it's surprising to learn that this passage is not about marriage or about falling in love at all. It's about how the church will survive as one body. Paul argues in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 that love is absolutely necessary. He says, We can be the most gifted member of the church who can preach like no one else or have faith to move mountains or give more money than anyone else in the history of the church. But if we don't have love, we're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal to everyone else in the body and we have gained nothing. Why? Because gifts exercised for our own sake or with a small set of groupies, will not build up the body of Christ. And the gifts will not endure. It is only love, faith, hope, and love that endure. But lest we misunderstand and think that happy thoughts and warm feelings are the things that are going to hold us together as the body of Christ, Paul then takes verses 4 to 7 to describe what kind of love is necessary for us to exercise towards one another in the body of Christ. And look at those verses verses 4 through 7. Paul's description of the love that is necessary is gritty. It's hands dirty. It's a determined effort of selfless care for one another. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but with truth. Love bears all things. Dwell on that one for a minute. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Our response to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is not self-protective or aiming for our own good. It is not cynical or characterized by quick judgments about what one another must be thinking or doing. Rather, as Paul adds in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it is marked by humility, gentleness, bearing with one another's weaknesses and annoyances, all motivated by an eagerness in each one of us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now make no mistake about it, 
This is going to require quickness to self-examination, quickness to repent, quickness to forgive, because we are committed to living in the unity we have in Christ. And we know that this is, this is hard. Maybe, maybe some of you have people in this church or in a previous church that are particularly challenging for us to know how to live this out. Maybe you would read over this list and maybe you would pick out one characteristic of love that you find it particularly hard to exercise. Maybe it's kindness. Maybe it's not being irritable. Maybe it's jumping to conclusions about other people's motives. So maybe ask yourself this morning, where would God need to refine you and I so that we live out this pattern for us as his people? Because we're here to worship as many parts, but as members of one body in Christ. I want to step back now. Where have we come? We've heard that the triune God has acted to bring a wide diversity of people into one body in Christ. And we've seen that love is the necessary bond that will keep this body together. I've tried to ask questions and make applications as we've gone along. So rather than give you three applications this morning, I want to conclude with three reasons why the unity of our fellowship together is so important. So here's the first. The first reason our worship and fellowship with one another is so important is that the body of Christ is God's plan for us to care for one another. Paul says this directly in verse 25 when he says that the members of the body are ought to have the same care for one another. But just think about the New Testament and what Scripture tells us. How does the New Testament tell us we will find comfort in grief? Well, 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that we comfort one another with the comfort we have from Christ. We comfort one another with the comfort we have in Christ. How are we provided when we don't have what we need? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says that God provides for us through the generosity of our fellow believers. How are we challenged in sin, strengthened in weakness, encouraged in joy, or supported in sorrow? Scripture's answers to every one of those questions is through one another, by the body of Christ. So if we withdraw from the body of Christ, we are withdrawing from God's care plan for his people. And if we fail to engage intimately with the body of Christ, we are robbing our brothers and sisters of the care and encouragement that we are called to give them as part of the family of God. And while we know that God himself is sufficient for us in all circumstances, his intended plan for our care for one another is through the body of Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason our worship and fellowship together is so important is that our spiritual growth happens together as well. When you are looking to grow as a child, none of you think, boy, I've really got to try to feed this finger so this finger grows. And now I've got to try to feed my kneecap so my kneecap will grow. Now you feed your body and your body grows together. And we get the same picture in Ephesians chapter 4. When Paul says that believers together as they speak the truth in love to one another, the whole body is built up into maturity in Christ. Welsh pastor Jeff Thomas wrote, It is not exclusively the preacher who is the one teaching us. Every single Christian has something to offer to each other. But to profit from them, we have to be with them. And to be with them, we have to love the Lord's people. So do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, 
Without them, we are not making the progress we should. We are not producing the fruit that both ourselves and the hour needs. Of course, none of this is to deny that God works in us individually as we commune in prayer and his word. Of course, he does. But we need to remember that God's word continues to point us back to the fact that it is together as we commune together with God as his people, hearing from his word, responding together in in praise and commitment to him, that that is how he shapes us more and more into his image in important ways. So we gather because God's plan for us is to grow spiritually together. Finally, let me give you a third reason. Our worship and fellowship together is so important because it is God's plan for displaying his love to the world. Remember what Jesus said in John 13 on the eve of his crucifixion? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, there was supposed to be a visible, tangible, sacrificial, self-denying love in the body of Christ that would reflect Christ and show his love to the world. I think Jesus adds to this later that same night. John 17, 21, as he's praying to his Father, he prays that his people would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity together in the bond of the Spirit, our love for one another as the Father has loved the Son, would be a testimony to the world that Jesus was the Son of God and that he transforms people into his image through faith in him. So our corporate worship, our mutual, patient, forgiving, self-denying love is meant to be a testimony to the world of the truth and the transforming power of the gospel. And so that's the third reason we gather together why this is so important. Because it's God's plan for giving a visible testimony of his love to the world. Well, that brings us to an end in this series. And I think we've just ended where we began with the character of God. The character of God who is worthy of all our worship. We began by considering God whose majesty and glory and holiness called us in awe and reverence to praise His majesty. Now we end with the character of God, of the self-sacrificing love He has shown to us. And we are called now to imitate that part of His character, that we might be instruments in his hands, that his work might be done in one another's lives, that his good news might be known throughout the world. That's what's at stake as we remember with whom we worship, the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, one body in him across difference and difficulty, just as he intended it in his sovereign will. Let's pray. Father, How we thank you that your plan was not to just save us individually and have many different little relationships with people throughout the world, but rather your plan was to save us together in community and fellowship with one another. Your plan was to draw us into one body in Christ, a body that could care for one another and be your means of comfort and encouragement and challenge and joy a body that would grow together as we 
mutually speak the truth and love to one another in your presence and a body that would demonstrate your love to one another and be a testimony to the world of the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come to save sinners, a visible picture of your love for your people. Father, how we pray that this would be true among us and in us for the sake of your name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.